Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Okay, so I wanted to start tonight with a huge thank you to everyone who contributed to our fund drive just before Thanksgiving. We had a really wonderful turnout, and it was just really so nice to see how many people contributed, and it will really help us to continue to make the station better and to continue to provide quality programming to the community. So again, thanks. That being said, let's dig in and start with some great news from the world of space exploration. NASA's InSight lander touched down on the surface of Mars successfully on Monday. Now, InSight stands for Interior Exploration Using Seismic Investigations, Geodesy, and Heat Transport. (laughs) It's the eighth successful landing for NASA on the surface of Mars. Um, And so that is really exciting. And so it landed on a part of Mars called the Elysium Planitia, uh, which is near the equator of the planet. Now, the telemetry for the landing was broadcast by a pair of tiny satellites called MARCO, uh, which were deployed by InSight prior to descent in order to aid in communication. And so... um, Those are those little tiny cube satellites that we've been hearing so much about. And those ones are actually really small. And it's really cool that they were able to work as planned. Now, over the next year on Mars, which is the equivalent to around two years here on Earth, uh, just under, the lander will monitor the planet for well, Mars quakes (laughs) rather than earthquakes um, and other seismic events that ripple through the planet. Now, it'll also drive, drill five meters into the interior of the planet in order to map the internal heat flow, which should give researchers more information on how geologically active Mars is at present. Now, InSight opened up its solar panels and began charging its batteries soon after landing, and it began sending back pictures with the instrument deployment camera, which will allow the NASA team to best determine where to deploy instruments in the nearby landscape. These instruments include the Heat Flow and Physical Properties Package, or the HP Cubed, and the Seismic Experiment for Interior Structures, or SICE, which must both make direct contact with the surface of the planet in order to perform properly. InSight is the first mission that has probed the interior of a planet other than Earth. The HP cubed and SICE instruments will be placed on the surface by the lander's robotic arm and will remain stationary throughout the experiment. Now, HP cubed is the instrument that will actually drill into the Martian surface to a depth, again, of about 5 meters or almost 16 feet. This is the deepest we've drilled on any planetary body other than Earth, including asteroids and smaller bodies. 
Now, the instrument carries a ribbon-shaped cable that is filled with temperature sensors, which will help it measure heat flow within the surface of the planet. We know that Mars's interior is not as warm as Earth's, but we've never taken the planet's temperature. HP cubed will take Mars's temperature, tell us how much heat is leaving the planet and whether Earth and Mars formed from the same stuff. That's key to learning not only about Mars, but also about how all the rocky planets of the solar system formed and evolved, noted Tillman Spahn, uh, principal investigator for the HP cubed team. Now, SICE is a round dome-shaped instrument that will take the quote-unquote pulse of the Martian surface, according to NASA. It contains a suite of wind, pressure, temperature, and magnetic field sensors to aid in the seismometer's readings. Um, And so it may be able to detect the presence of liquid water or plumes of active volcanoes below the surface of the planet, that is, if they're there. By measuring the change in waves as they pass through different materials, SICE will be able to determine what those different materials are in the Martian interior. They expect that among the seismic disturbances that will uh, happen and be measured will be the impact of several meteors over the course of the experiment. It will also be able to use seismic waves produced from weather phenomena on the planet, which is why it includes things like wind gauges. Now, the other major instrument is the RISE, or the Rotation and Interior Structure Experiment. Using two antennas placed on opposite sides of the lander, RISE will give precise measurements of the lander's position in order to track how much Mars's North Pole wobbles as it orbits the Sun. So this will give us information on the size of Mars's iron-rich core and can help determine if it is liquid or if there are elements other than iron present. RISE will use the Doppler effect to measure changes in the position of the surface. If the instrument registers a large amount of wobble, this will indicate that the core of Mars is molten, as opposed to solid. Though we do suspect, I think, that it's solid, given the fact that it has actually lost its magnetic field and things like that. And so previous measurements from the Viking lander and from Mars Pathfinder revealed that Mars wobbles over a Martian year, but by how much is what RISE will determine. And while we're on the topic of Mars, the Mars 2020 lander continues to take shape and to be on tap to discover even more science about our red neighbor. I know it seems kind of uh, presumptuous, I guess, to start talking about the next lander just a few days after the current lander has landed, but they're going to be looking at different things. So um, I'm very excited about InSight, and I'm sure we'll get more really interesting science from InSight, but the Mars 2020 lander is also really interesting. And so NASA recently announced that they have determined where the lander will uh, be aimed. And so it's going to be aimed at Jezero Crater, And so Jezero shows signs of having once been an ancient lake delta system. And so the researchers hope it has captured and preserved information of Martian evolution, and if it ever existed, perhaps even evidence of ancient life. 
Now, the site was chosen from among 60 initial candidates and has and had a geological record, has a geological record that dates from 3.6 to 3.9 billion years ago. Jezero Crater's geology is very obvious from orbit, and it is clear that the environment was habitable in the past, Tanya Bosak, an associate professor in MIT's Department of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Science, or EAPS, said. It is older than any sedimentary environment preserved in the rock record from Earth. Jezero Crater preserves some of the most ideal rock types that we use to look for past life on Earth. And so it turns out that the site includes rocks that contain clays and carbonates, which are minerals that on Earth, at least, aid in the preservation of fossils. So we figure it's probably one of the best places to look for fossils. Now, the Mars 2020 lander is unique and exciting, not only because it will be doing work on the surface of the planet that will be really interesting and cool, but it will also store sediment cores that will be returned to Earth during a later mission. While much can be learned from using the imaging and spectroscopic tools that can be operated remotely on spacecraft, nothing compares to the sensitivity and specificity with the rapidly advancing chemical instrumentation we can access, we can access in laboratories around the world, Roger Summons, professor of geobiology, also at EAPS, noted. This has been shown over and over again by what has been learned during the almost 50 years of studies of rocks that were returned to Earth during the Apollo era of moon exploration. Now, in addition to searching for signs of life on Mars, researchers also believe the site will be useful for studying the history of the planet's magnetic field. And so at some point in the ancient past, we know that Mars lost its magnetic field. And so we also know that generally a magnetic field is generated by the dynamo effect from a liquid core, which is again why I suspect that we will find that the core of Mars is not liquid at this point. And of course, as with the magnetic field, much of the atmosphere was also lost. And of course, this would have led to a dramatic change, a drastic change, in fact, in the ability of life to be sustained on the planet. The most important issue is to determine whether the dynamo turned off. This would help determine if the transition from a warmer, wetter early Mars to the current cold and dry state was caused by the loss of the dynamo field, Ben Weiss, professor of planetary sciences at EAPS, said. Jezero is an excellent place to test this hypothesis because it contains rocks and minerals with ages spanning the time we suspect that the dynamo turned off. Okay, so closer to home, but staying with NASA, uh, they announced today that they are partnering with nine companies to bid, to bid on delivery surfaces to the lunar surface through the Commercial Lunar Payload Services uh, suite of contracts. Today's annou announcement marks tangible progress in America's return to the moon's surface to stay, said NASA's administrator, NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine. 
the innovation of America's aerospace companies wedded with our big goals in science and human exploration are going to help us achieve amazing things on the moon and feed forward to Mars. The contracts mark the first steps in that commitment to return humans to the surface of the moon and then eventually onward to Mars. Unfortunately, it also marks the beginning of a push orchestrated by the current administration to divest NASA um, of parts of its mission and turn them over to private space exploration companies. In a December 2017 directive, the Republican president stated that the U.S. should work on divesting itself of direct support of the International Space Station by 2025 and to look at the moon and Mars as commercial endeavors, including, quote, further enable the nurture. Further enable and nurture entrepreneurial and commercial market forces that will define long term human exploration and exploitation of the lunar surface. And also aggressively categorize lunar resources so that their potential future exploitation can be addressed. Sigh. As an anti-capitalist, this makes me extremely sad. I do support, in general terms, the return of humans to the moon. But I'm very, very unhappy about the idea that we will be turning a lot of this exploration and research and all of the things that go into getting to the moon over to private corporations in a way that it, I feel like it wasn't during the Apollo missions. The reason for this is because a lot of the reason for going to the moon and to other places like that is in order to create all sorts of amazing things that have to get us there. And if those things are being created by private corporations, then they will be controlled by those private corporations rather than by the uh, government and, by extension, the people of the country. And, of course, part of this is just the continuing idea that we don't value science as a enterprise that should be a public um, it, that should be a public enterprise, not a private enterprise. And I think that is really to our detriment. Now, of course, um, sometimes people ask, and in case you don't know, which I don't know whether you do, um, you know, why do we have to reinvent the wheel when it when it comes to going to the moon? Well, the thing is, is that we had great technology in the 60s in order to get to the moon, but because we didn't keep going to the moon, the uh, technology that we used to get to the moon in the 60s, we can't use that today because it's completely and utterly outdated. But we didn't keep up with devising new ways to go to the moon each time. And going to the moon is a different kind of enterprise than going to, say, the International Space Station, because the International Space Station, even though it's in space, it's very close to the Earth comparatively. And so everything that we're doing with manned space flight right now is all in low Earth orbit. And so going to the moon is actually a bigger deal. And it requires a lot of 
other technical hurdles that we have to deal with and we have to figure out using our technology now. And so, yes, we have already done this. And, you know, some people might be thinking, well, just do what we did before. But it it is complicated in, you know, sometimes counterintuitive ways, but just in general, it does require a lot of uh, new technologies to be developed. Now, of course, Mars is another thing. I'm still dubious of efforts to create real outposts on that planet that are sustainable. Uh, I think that it is definitely still one of those things where people kind of think, well, you know, we'll just go to Mars and then we'll go other places and we'll just, you know, solve humanity's problem that way. And I, of course, really more support turning inward and fixing the problems on our own planet. Um, But again, some of the technologies that are developed for things like going to the moon do end up having applications on the earth as well. Um, Many, many things that we use today were developed during the original space race. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it is important to continue to have um, exploration, but I still don't think that anyone's going to be living on the moon Uh, in any generation near this one. Okay, Um, so let's talk about another thing that's been in the news quite a bit of late. Let's talk about marijuana and hemp for a few minutes. Now, I could give you a whole lecture on the history of these two plants in America, the role of capitalism in containing certain markets with the use of fear, but as I like to uh, keep that sort of uh, under wraps, that is a tale for a different show, which I do not have time to uh, produce, <laughs> which is uh, my uh, history uh, radio show that comes to you from an anti-capitalist perspective. But uh, again, I don't have time for that. So we'll table that. What I want to talk to you tonight about is an interesting paper published in Genome Research by Harm Van Bakkel, who is a geneticist at the Econ School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. And so he and some of his colleagues some of whom are connected to cannabis companies, but there's no reason why uh, this research should be colored by that because it's not, uh, it doesn't have any judgment calls in it. (laughs) So, um, you know, they are required to uh, disclose their uh, possible conflicts of interest. And so it's nice that they were able to do that um, or that they did that, you know, without having any trouble with, you know, telling the truth, um, because, you know, there are scientists out there who do do that sometimes, unfortunately. But anyways, what they did was they looked at the genomes of a drug type strain of purple kush and the hemp variety, uh, phenola. And so what they had done is they had actually done a previous study where they did a genome sequence of both of those plants. And so what they did was they came back together and they created a hybrid of these two varieties of cannabis sativa, um, which is the uh, scientific name for this plant. And what they did was they then uh, were able to sequence that one. And so now they've gotten a better picture of what's going on. 
And so they were interested in finding out how the various cannabinoid compounds evolved. It turns out that there are actually over 113 known cannabinoids, but the most well-known are THC, which is responsible for the high effect, and um, cannabid, cannab, I never know how to pronounce this, cannabidiol or CBD. I usually just say CBD, <laughs> uh, which is where much of the medical research is focused. Now, again, we're not going to get into any kinds of uh, judgment calls on whether or not it is effective for medicine. Uh, there is one uh, drug that has been FDA approved that uses CBD that is used for a very specific kind of childhood epilepsy. And if it works for that, amazing, excellent. Um but again, I'm not going to consider CBD to be a miracle until much more research is done. So the ratio of these two cannabinoid compounds is what generally is used to classify a plant as either a drug or hemp chemotype. Though many modern strains of drug plants contain large quantities of both compounds, so high TH. THC plants can actually have high levels of CBD, um, but in order to be considered a hemp plant, it can have high levels of CBD, but the levels of THC must be much lower. Okay, so the researchers had two different hypotheses as to how the genes for production of these compounds developed. One line suggested that they had developed independently, while another suggested they descended from a common ancestor gene that was silenced or otherwise altered in different species. Now, again, previous genetic mapping had actually been constrained by the fact that the genome contains a large amount of retrotransposon regions. And so these are regions of the genome that are non-coding and largely repeating and in fact, they're often the remnants of long, long, long ago infections with viruses that have since integrated into the genome of the species. And that makes it harder to piece together the smaller strands of DNA that were required for earlier sequencing. So if you basically have all of these regions that have the same uh, kind of um, coding, and you've got these pieces that you're trying to put together, think of a puzzle where a lot of the pieces are exactly the same and they might be cut up in different ways, but you can't tell because if it's A-A-A-A-A-A-A, for instance, and, you know, it's hard to figure out where those go together. And so that was why they were limited in what they could do previously. However, new technology has allowed for longer segments to be sequenced, making the process of piecing together the genome easier. What's really interesting is that these retrotransposon regions are actually really, really common, especially in plants. Um, I think they said, I forget what the actual um, percentage was, but it might be up to like 91% of the maze genome is these retrotransposon regions. Um, and uh, animals also have a lot of them as well. Um, and of course, these are from like the a lot of these viruses that they come from would have been in very ancient, you know, uh, ancestral species from, from very ancient times. Um, and so 
What they were able to do is they were able to compare the parent and hybrid sequences and look at those differences. And so they found that the genes for THC and CBD are surrounded and even interrupted by chains of these retrotransposon regions, which most likely helped lead to the divergence of the two genes within the species. And so, of course, more work will need to be done on the genome of different strains of the plant, um, because this is just two strains that they've worked on so far. Um, and so basically part of the reason why they want to do this is that, of course, these plants are becoming important commercial crops. They're becoming cash crops. And so better understanding of their genetics can help growers to be more careful and to more carefully and easily create hybrids with the characteristics they desire. And the team actually found a third compound, CBC or cannabichromine, which appears in both hemp and marijuana strains, but which has a dampening effect on some THC. Uh, and so some of the effects of THC. And so those wanting to plant a wanting a plant that produces a greater high would want less of this compound in their strain. And so, yeah, I think it's really interesting from a, you know, plant biology uh, standpoint. Uh, marijuana still is not my thing, but if it's your thing, cool. Um, I am very much a uh, <laughs> agnostic when it comes to uh, that drug in particular. Okay. But let us take a moment to do some uh, PSAs and some show promos, and then we will come back and we will talk about the big news from this week. Uh, we will talk about a certain Chinese researcher and uh, a certain really just mind-boggling thing that happened this week. But uh, yeah, so stay tuned for that in just a minute. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Drum and Bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on the Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10 Saturday nights. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. 
keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Hello, this is John Hodgman, resident expert for The Daily Show with John Stewart and author of More Information Than You Require, speaking into a small machine, representing WXOJLP Northampton Valley Free Radio, found on your radio dial at 103.3 frequency modulation. That is all. Hello, everybody. I'm DJ Panic, host of OK Asia, a program with a wide selection of Asian artists. I like to combine genres from rock, pop, hip-hop, Bollywood, and R&B. So please join me every Saturday from 12 to 2 a.m. on Valley Free Radio. Hi, I'm Ruthie. And I have a recorder. Stick them up. <laughs> Listen to Out There on Wednesdays, 4 to 5 p.m. here on Valley Free Radio for interviews and snippets of life from the paths and streets of Northampton. You can hear past editions of Out There archived at weatherbeard.com slash out there. A world of opportunity is sitting here in the Pioneer Valley right in Hoyoke. Bringing together a variety of organizations, Passport Hoyoke helps you discover Hoyoke's varied treasures. With numerous events happening nearly every day, there's no reason to ever be bored. For a full list of events and member organizations, visit Passport Hoyoke on the web at www.passporthoyoke.org. Come discover the city of Hoyoke. And we are back. Okay. So we are going to talk about that other story that has been buzzing through the world of science this week, which was, of course, the surprise announcement by Chinese researcher He Jiankui uh, that he had used the gene editing tool CRISPR to create genetically altered twins. Now, the twins were said to have been designed to be potentially resistant to infection by HIV. His team tried to use the gene editing tool to change the expression of the CC5, I'm sorry, CCR5 immune system molecule in the babies. So what they would have done is uh, change it when it was just a zygote and then um, through in vitro fertilization, then uh, implant the babies. Now, CCR5 studs the surface of white blood cells and acts as a receptor for chemokines. Now, those are chemical messengers that are used to control the action of various immune cell types. And so uh, white blood cells, there are different kinds of them. They do different jobs. Now, HIV uses CCR5 to latch onto those white blood cells and breach their membranes. And so that's how it actually starts to be uh, the infection that 
generally uh, would have turned into AIDS uh, before um, now. But of course, we do have a lot of people now with the use of um, uh, PrEP uh, and other kinds of drug um, cocktails they are able to suppress the HIV enough that they don't develop full-blown AIDS. Now, it's been known for over 20 years that a small portion of European and Americans have a mutant version of the CCR5 gene, which prevents HIV from infecting the cells and thus confers a good amount of resistance to the infection. Now, about 10% of the population from these uh, geographic areas have one copy of the gene, but only 1% of that 10% have two copies of the gene, and that is the only way to be highly resistant to the HIV virus. Now, again, it's not completely resistant. Uh, You have about a thousand times... um, less of a risk of getting it, but it's still not, you still could possibly get HIV. Now, this variant is known as CCR5 Delta 32. It is this variant, which is missing 32 base pairs of the more common gene sequence that he sought to produce in the babies. And of course, it is the perfect kind of, um, Example for doing CRISPR because what CRISPR does is it basically snips part of uh, the the DNA out of the uh, overall genome, and so that's what it does. It's they're they're basically uh, they've been compared to molecular scissors, and so that would be a good way to show the use of CRISPR from a very technical standpoint. Um, And so uh, his team may have been spurred by the success of the case of Timothy Ray Brown, who was an HIV-infected man who in in 2007 was actually given a bone marrow transplant from a donor who was homogenous for, um, or homozygous, excuse me, for CCR5 Delta 32 which of course means he had two copies of the gene. And so it turns out that this allowed Timothy Ray Brown to be effectively cured of his HIV infection. So aside from the idea of tinkering with the human genome uh, from an ethical standpoint, one might say, what's the problem? That sounds sensible. Uh, Especially since, you know, it's very easy to... uh, with CRISPR to do these kinds of gene editings. And, you know, who doesn't want to have people who are resistant to terrible scourges like HIV? Well, the big problem, first of all, is that CRISPR can actually make off-target edits in the genome. And so think about it. When you're using scissors, sometimes your hand slips and you cut wrong. CRISPR, again, being essentially a pair of molecular scissors, Sometimes they too can slip and cut the wrong part of the genome out. Now, he has reported that there were no off-target edits, but since he hasn't properly published any of his data, researchers are dubious as to whether or not he can really claim that. 
He also reports that it turns out that only one of the babies tested positive for two copies of the gene. And it turns out that even if the gene was crippled, there's still the potential for the body to either repair the gene or still produce non-mutated proteins. And it turns out that there is an even more serious wrinkle. Now, for many years, researchers believed that those with the Delta 32 variant did not have any deleterious effects, that they just had this ability to resist getting HIV. But in recent years, it's actually been found that those with the mutation are at greater risk for suffering more serious cases of West Nile disease. They have a higher mortality rate from the disease as well. So it turns out that the unmutated variant regulates the trafficking of white blood cells to brains infected by West Nile. And there may indeed be other infections that have had a similar response. And so he contended that his research meets an quote unquote unmet medical need. And so that's a key ethical principle that require that is required for conducting CRISPR research on human embryos. However, HIV-AIDS researchers argue that this sort of intervention is not practical at all. It would require a massive in vitro fertilization campaign with a massive number of successful babies altered properly to have any impact on the HIV-AIDS infection rates in the world. Now, I will say that for me, the ethics of this are dubious at best. First off, this type of genetic manipulation would only be available to the most wealthy among the human race, making the divide between the haves and the have-nots even wider. Secondly, our understanding of the genetic code is still in its infancy. We literally cannot know what collateral effects changing the genome in this matter might have. Now, I'm totally in favor of finding ways to limit disease, but I think we have a long way to go before we can do it safely, and I would only support something that could be used across the world by peoples of all countries and all socioeconomic statuses. We do no, the world no favors by continuing to create a divide between those who can afford access to healthcare and scientific interventions and those who can't. Now, um... Obviously, I don't have any religious objections to this, not being religious. Um, I think that if there were ways to improve the health of human beings in general, that I think that it's always better to uh, err on the side of helping people than not helping people. Um, and I don't have any sort of issues with the idea of, you know, mad science in that respect if it was actually done in a way that would be um, equitable and would be safe. And unfortunately, that's the big hurdle um, for any of this is the idea of how do we know if this won't have unintended consequences further down the road. Um, and sometimes it is just better to do things like find ways using drugs to prevent people from uh, developing AIDS. But, you know, they do still have HIV in their system, but it's suppressed enough that they don't develop AIDS. And yes, that's expensive and it can be really hard on people and it's very hard um, 
you know, to keep up those regimes. And there's a lot of people for whom that's been really problematic, but this wouldn't actually help them. Um, they would probably have to do something like that bone marrow transplant. And that, of course, has its own set of problems where, um, you know, whenever you have any kind of transplant, you then have to take uh, anti-rejection drugs for the rest of your life. So, you know, it's complicated. Um but I don't think that this is something that we should really be celebrating. Um, I think it's something that we should definitely be looking at hard and saying, you know, this is not what we want to be doing. And so, uh, again, part of the problem is that there's a lot of stuff that we literally do not know. Um, even things we thought we knew can turn out not to be correct. For instance, it has just been reported by a team led by Tao Sheng Huang, a pediatrician and geneticist at Cincinnati's Children's Hospital Medical Center, has found 17 verified cases of individuals who have inherited mitle, mighty the mitochondrial DNA from a fraternal source across three unrelated families. And so he discovered this when he tested the blood of a four-year-old boy who had two different sets of mitochondrial DNA. And so it turns out that he received two kinds of DNA because his mother had two kinds of DNA. And so when she uh, donated her mitochondrial DNA to her son, he got some that was from both her and um, probably her father. And so, of course, what we had previously thought to be true about the process of fertilization should make this impossible. Most mitochondria in sperm cells is either lost as the sperm develops or the remnants that survive the fertilization process are tagged with a chemical marker that allows the egg to easily find and destroy them. Part of the reason for this is that uh, male mitochondria tends to have a greater chance of having mutations and we need that mitochondrial uh, DNA. So the mitochondrial DNA does a lot of things in our system. So the um, because the male's uh, mitochondria tends to have more um, mutations, it makes sense to only have maternal mitochondria. And so only a few species like flies and mice uh, were previously known to occasionally let through male mitochondria. Now, the first confirmed human case was in 2002, but because a search for other people with uh, paternal mitochondria uh, was fruitless up until this point, people thought that it was just a sort of a fluke um, case and that it was just something weird had happened with that person. Now, it turns out that they found that within the genetic family tree of each of these families, not all members inherited mixed mitochondria. Only some children did, and if the children were female, they could then pass on this mixed mitochondria to their children in the quote-unquote normal way. And so, again, this is how Huang's initial patient inherited his mixed mitochondria. Now, in male children, it was more complicated, though the ability to pass on paternal DNA seemed to be a dominant trait, 
Uh, as it was passed on, not all children received a copy of the gene, and thus some children became dead ends for the paternal DNA. But how this process happens is still unclear. Though it must be some sort of gene mechanism in the nuclear DNA, as the mitochondrial DNA of these paternal inheritors seems to be in keeping with uh, normal, the normal um, DNA that you would expect in mitochondria. Huang and his group have since found several other families that have mixed mitochondrial DNA. They suspect the phenomena might be as common as one in every 5,000 people. Now, of course, more research will be needed to confirm the findings. Not only is this a fascinating story, though, it's a great example of how we need to constantly be reevaluating our assumptions about what we know to be true. Much like with the architecture of the pelvis, which I talked about recently, uh, scientists had made an assumption that mitochondria was only ever inherited from the mother. And so uh, when you then look at a wider range of examples, you tend to find differences and complications. Now, of course, in this respect, it's less about just having decided that the plate that the one that we knew about must be uh, able to be um, extrapolated to everyone. There is some uh, reason to give scientists a bit of a pass on this one. And so it turns out that, you know, as I mentioned before, we have new DNA sequencing techniques that were not available to earlier researchers, which makes it much easier to find these kinds of weird and wacky things that are going on in the genome. But of course, the point still stands that the best science is that which comes from keeping an open mind to all possible outcomes. Of course, as always, you need to have an open mind, but not so open that your brain falls out. And so, yeah. Oh, let's talk about an unfortunate story next, which is the problem with uh, science being uh, often ignored, even when it is rather conclusive. And so around the world last year, cases of measles jumped 31%. Now, it does involve a combination of both political unrest, but also vaccine refusal, which has fueled the resurgence of this highly contagious disease that was once thought to be on the way to extinction, along with smallpox and polio. And of course, political unrest and misinformation campaigns have also stymied plans to eradicate polio. But for now, let's talk about measles. Both the Americans and the European region have the resources to stop measles, and it's not happening, said William Moss, an infectious disease epidemiologist at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, who was not involved with the report released recently from the World Health Organization and the U.S. Center for Disease Control. Now, it's not all bad news. Despite the rise in cases last year, in the period between 2000 and 2017, cases dropped 80% worldwide. Vaccinations prevented an estimated 21.1 million deaths, though it continues to be the leading cause of vaccine-preventable infant deaths globally. 
Global efforts to eliminate measles continue to make progress, said Rebecca Martin, director of the CDC's Center for Global Health in Atlanta. Despite these gains, multiple regions have experienced large measles outbreaks in 2017, primarily due to low vaccination coverage nationally or in geographic pockets, illustrating how fragile gains in disease elimination can be. Now, of course, part of the issue is that this disease is incredibly contagious. It can survive for up to two hours in the air. People can be infectious for several days before they even realize that they have been infected. And it's just, it's so, so contagious. One of the worst cases of resurgence was in Venezuela, where the World Health Organization actually had to declare that as of July 2018, endemic measles has been re-established in the country. Previously, the World Health Organization had declared the Americas free of endemic cases of measles. And so it has actually been re-established because the amount of measles cases was so great. Now, of course, Venezuela has been ravaged by upheaval, which has led to a collapse of the public health infrastructure. So this isn't about people who should be getting the vaccine and just choose not to. Um, Unfortunately, this is about um, really just not having access to the ability to get vaccinated. And so Citizens fleeing the country actually spread the outbreak to Brazil and to other neighboring countries. And so that is a really huge public health issue. Measles elimination is a fragile state, said Moss. If we turn away from measles control and elimination, it's going to come back. Now, the authors of the report do note that some increase in the numbers could be due to the increase in countries reporting data. However, there is also evidence to suggest that the cases are, quote unquote, grossly unreported overall, according to Moss. Now, of course, outbreaks in Europe and the U.S. have been caused by the completely preventable problem of vaccine refusal. And so we continue to see people who don't understand science, apparently don't want to prevent their children from getting these terrible diseases. And it's just so frustrating and so upsetting. Um, There is no reason not to get a measles vaccine. There's no reason to get any vaccine that is in production today and is offered to uh, children and to not give your child vaccinations is, in my book, unconscionable. Um, And so it is extremely important to get your children vaccinated. Okay, so let's wind wind up, though, with a much more uh, (laughs) neutral story, much less of a uh, divided, uh, divisive story. And though I do want to give a bit of a trigger warning um, because it is about spiders. So if you don't want to hear about spiders, um, civil politics will be up in just a few minutes. Um, And so, yeah. Okay. So in the continuing vein of stories about how humans aren't as special as they like to think that they are, comes a heartwarming tale of spider moms who produce milk and care for their offspring. So researchers Chen Zhangqi and Quan Ryu-Chang, behavioral ecologists at the Chinese Academy of Sciences Center for Integrative Conservation 
in Meng Lujian, uh, showed that females of the jumping spider t- species Toxius magnus nurse their young. And so nursing and caring long-term for the young has been unheard of in insects and other invertebrates. Other than mammals, it's not even that common in vertebrates. And so this new research suggests that despite this, it may not be a sign of higher order thinking that it was once thought to be. And so T. magnus females lay between two and 36 eggs at a time. When the eggs hatch, the mother begins to deposit tiny droplets of quote unquote milk uh, around the nest. And so when the researchers analyzed the milk substance, they found it contained four times the protein of cow's milk along with fats and sugars. Now, soon after their hatch, the young begin to line up at the entrance of the birth canal to suckle. At 20 days, they begin to hunt outside of the nest, but still supplement their diet until they are sexually mature at another 20 days. When denied this sustenance, the spiders under 20 days died, and those who were older grew more slowly, left the nest sooner, and were less likely to survive to adulthood. The milk may be liquefied eggs that the spider excretes in order to give sustenance to the spiderlings. Now, it turns out that some amphibians and other invertebrates lay what are called trophic eggs for the very, very young, uh, which are unfertilized. And it turns out that the literature actually has a few other examples of spiders feeding their young, according to Rosemary Gillespie, an evolutionary ecologist at the University of California, Berkeley. And so one study in the 90s found that spiderlings of the funnel web spider coleotes ate clear yellow drops of liquid or brownish clusters deposited on the webs. Mothers of the spider Amarobius lay naked egg sacs, which their spiderlings immediately devour. Now, of course, these again, though, are pretty rare. Such parental care most likely signals that these species are found in areas where there is little to no food for newborns or that spiderlings are likely to be eaten by predators before reaching maturity. And so it's in these cases that it makes sense for the mother to expend energy to keep them alive at the expense of potentially her own survival. So yeah, cool spider moms doing their spider mom thing. All right, (laughs) so that is all the time I have for tonight. Please do stay tuned for... Uh, civil politics coming up next. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.